Okay, so the, the question that drives the first half of Romans 6 is, that, as we already said, look, if salvation is by grace alone, um, if being changed is by grace alone, alone then doesn't the, the gospel actually encourage sin? And Paul's answer, like, immediately is, by no means. In other words, are you crazy? <laughs> are you crazy? And then he goes off to list why that's true. And the question that drives this section is the same in substance with a slight alteration. The question goes like this. If we no longer live under the authority and reign of God's law, if we no longer uh, are mastered by or live under the authority and reign of God's standards, then once again, isn't it true that the gospel would encourage sin? And Paul's response again is, what is it? By no means, twice in a row. In other words, are you crazy again? So this morning, it's pretty clear that you would know where uh, Paul stands, the apostle. Paul believes very strongly that the radical grace of God offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace that, once again, as we've said, says that you are loved and saved in spite of yourself, with nothing that you've contributed on your own, on your own behalf, that this grace produces deep, sincere obedience, deep life change in those who have trusted in it. So look with me at verse 17 and see just uh, briefly how the apostle puts it. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient, then notice the next three words, from the heart. Another translation may have that as wholeheartedly. You become obedient from the deepest part of who you are to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In fact, Paul will, the apostle will go so far as to say in other places that the radical grace of God is the only instrument, the only instrument of true obedience. That God's mercy and God's grace can do, will do, what the law can never do. That there really is no way to change unless God's grace becomes the operative power in your life. The center of, uh, the, the principled center of your identity as a man. That's where it starts. There's a video that circulated a few years ago. I know that you can still find it on the internet because nothing's ever lost there, right? Um, it's about five minutes long and it features Bob Newhart as a therapist. Maybe you've seen this video before. I didn't grow up watching Bob Newhart, but after watching this, I think he's very underrated, okay? By my generation, at least. So in the video, um, this young lady walks into uh, Bob's office to get some help from being buried alive in a box. So this is her biggest fear. It's a very serious fear. And Bob tells her that he can fix everything in five minutes. So he starts his watch, and she begins to explain to him the source of her fear that she just can't quit thinking about being buried alive in a box. She's panicked. In fact, she can't go through tunnels. Uh, she can't get in an elevator or even get in a house. Anything that she says is boxy. And the condition is making her life horrible. And so Bob is nodding along sympathetically like a good therapist. And then he tells her he's going to say two words to her. That he knows exactly how to fix her. He wants her to listen to these two words very carefully, and then like a good therapist, he says, I want you to go and I want you to incorporate them in your daily life. Take them out of the office and incorporate them into your life. And so she searches for a pen to write these two words down, the two words that will change her forever, and as she's searching for a pen, Bob yells at her, stop it! She goes, what? Stop it! 
And take it aback, she says, so should I just stop it? And Bob replies, well, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried in a box, do you? She says, no. He goes, stop it. And, she, and he says, we got two more minutes. And so she goes through her other problems, self-destructive relationships with men and bad self-image. And Bob says, stop it. You sound kooky. Just stop it. And this goes on and on and on again. And it's hilarious, especially when he does it. It's funny because it just does sort of seem like it should be that easy. Right? Uh, do you have an anger problem this morning? Stop it. Do you care too much about what other people think of you? Just stop it. Do you worry? Stop it. Workaholism, materialism, stop it. I mean, I would love this as a pastor. Every sermon that you heard would be two minutes, dismissed early for lunch, right? We would just huddle you in groups every morning when you came on Tuesday mornings and just have you yell at each other for 10 minutes and then leave, you know? Kolaches and yelling and get out of here. But listen, if that were... If that were true, you wouldn't come to my church, <laughs> and you would never hire uh, Bob Newhart as your therapist, and the Apostle Paul never says that to his people. Why? Because we all know it doesn't work, right? Uh, it's deeper than that. We intuitively know that there is a power behind our behaviors that must be addressed. And the Apostle Paul tells us throughout the New Testament that it is only the grace of of God, the radical, free, no-strings-attached grace of God that can diminish and even displace that power in our lives. There are two things in the passage this morning that I think Paul wants you to see when it comes to the question of life change. How is it that deep change, that deep obedience begins to get produced in our lives? Two things that I want you to see this morning. The first is this. Paul wants you to see what has happened once and for all for you. What has happened once and for all for you. And then secondly, he wants you to see what must continue to happen over and over again with you. What has happened once and for all for you, and then secondly, what must continue to happen over and over again with you. Let's take those in turn. First of all, what has happened once and for all for you. The happening is laid out for us in verse 17. Let's read it over again. Paul says, but thanks be to God. Why thanks be to God? Because it's wholly his work. It's not your work. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. In other words, Paul wants you to see that what you once were is no longer what you are now. If you are a Christian here this morning, you, uh, um, without a doubt, possess a new reality. There has been a fundamental once and for all break with your past and you are no longer the person that you once were. Your past does not define you. The old powers to which you are a slave, they no longer have dominion over you. In other places, Paul calls you a new creation. And listen to me, the same language is used in this passage in verse 19, in verse 20, in verse 22. It was the same language we read last week in verses 3, in verses 4, in verses 6, in verses 7. And it would be overwhelming this morning to go throughout the epistle to the Romans and to show you how often this language of once and for all transition, this language of newness occurs here in this letter and throughout the New Testament. 
Over and over and over again, Paul wants you to know that what you once were now in Christ, you no longer are. Your position, your personhood has been fundamentally altered so that as you sit this morning, you really are a new creation. I recently watched a, um, a documentary on, a PBS documentary on Henry Ford, on his life, his empire, his family. One of the very sad parts of the documentary detailed the relationship that Henry had with his, uh, his only child, his son, Edsel. Now, Edsel grew up in a very different reality than Henry did, and that was partly why Henry was so disappointed in him. He thought Edsel was, was spoiled. Uh, Edsel grew up in a world of affluence that Henry himself had created, and yet still, Henry lamented the fact that Edsel didn't have the work ethic that Henry had. No matter, Edsel was groomed to take over the motor company, which he officially did in 1919, but he never took over the company on his own terms terms. The shadow of his father was always with him. It affected him. It controlled him. And from the documentary, it was easy to see why. They tell a story early on in his decision making. Edsel started construction on a new administrative wing at the site of the company headquarters. And he was so excited about it. It was one of his first major decisions, right, um, uh, in the family business. And so um, a large hole was dug out for the footprint of this new big building that he had planned. And Henry drove by, and he hadn't seen it yet, and he decided he didn't want it. He told Edsel that he thought the building was a waste. It was a bad decision. It was a failure. And so Henry just overrode him and nixed the idea completely. So Edsel was extremely disappointed, and he started to do the only thing that he, you know, what you would normally do. He started to fill the hole back in, but Henry said, no, leave it. Leave the hole there publicly inside of everyone. And it was very clear why. Every day, Henry wanted Edsel to drive past that hole. He wanted that hole to be a visible reminder of Edsel's failure, of a father's disappointment, a visible reminder of a past that Edsel himself could never escape. Listen to me, I really do think a lot of us live like this. We live defined by the holes of our failures, defined by our sins, defined by our disappointments. We live controlled by something we once did, something we once were, by a past which we ourselves cannot fill in and cover. And so if you read much of the New Testament, here's what you'll see the Apostle Paul doing over and over again. He will drive you by the landscape of God's grace, and he will say to you, Christian, look. There are no more holes. Do you see, brother, your failures have been covered? Do you see now that in Christ you no longer are what you once were? Your landscape has changed. You are fundamentally altered. You have changed. And if you want deep change to occur in your life practically, if you want to live, Paul says, in the freedom of obedience to God, you have to see that God's grace in Christ has covered your past. And it has, in every sense, in every reality, given you a new present and a new future. You are no longer defined by your sin. You are no longer a prisoner of your shame. God has changed your position. He has changed your personhood once and for all. And those old holes are no longer the places where your identity is forged the first thing that Paul says is, look, 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 the gospel doesn't cause you to sin. Look at what God has done for you. 
once and for all in Christ. You are a slave to sin, but you are no longer. Your slavery has ended. That's what you have to see first. Second thing I think Paul wants us to see this morning is what must continue to happen. First, what has happened once and for all, and notice then what Paul says must now continue to happen. Now look at the passage. It is the only imperative in the section. An imperative is a command. And we find it in verse 19, and here's what Paul writes in verse 19. He says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, there's a progression, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. The command to present your members is in the present tense, which means it's something that we are operationally, tactically, always doing. We continue, we continue to do it. And the word members here just refers to who you are, every part of who you are. It's not like your arms and your fingers and your toes. It's everything. It's your mind, it's your body, it's your will, it's your gifts, it's your talents. Everything that makes you you, Paul says, offer yourself. Offer yourself continually, your whole self, to God. Offer yourself to God. And because this is a command, the grace here is actually in the practice itself. It's in the obedience. Which means this for you this morning. You have to intentionally do this. You have to intentionally present your whole life to God whether you feel like it or not. Paul does not say when you get your heart right, <laughs> then present yourself to God. He says, no, you belong to him. The only, now the obvious thing is to offer yourself to him in practice and see what he might do with your heart along the way. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about the nature of practices and what they do in the life of a person. He says this, sometimes you hug your wife if you're married, your child, if you have kids. Sometimes you hug your wife because you love her. Sometimes, though, you hug your wife in order to love her. And what he's getting at that is that practices, practices, disciplines, have the power to reveal a heart but they also had the power to shape a heart, to lead the heart. And Lewis goes on to write this. He says, good and evil both increase at compound interest. So you see that progression even in our passage this morning. Then he says, that is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of infinite importance. The smallest good act today or offering of ourselves is the capture. Lewis grew up in the, in, a, in the war generation, so he talks about this a lot. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. But an apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. What is he saying? He's saying this, even if it seems small today, do it. <laughs> even if it seems small today, even if it's, if it's the right offering, make the right offering. And even if it seems of no consequence right now, if it's wrongly presenting yourself to your anger, to your lust, to your selfishness, don't do it. Stop it, <laughs> as Newhart would say. <laughs> don't imagine that it won't affect your life in some larger way. Present yourself to God even in the small ways, as you have opportunities today. Just for a few minutes, let me just tell you how <clears throat> this has worked itself out in the church practically. So what does it look like? What would it look like for you 
to present yourself continually to God. You know, the church over 2,000 years has uh, um, always recognized the importance of what we've called daily consecration. Daily consecration. So before anyone had ever heard of a quiet time, which was everyone in the history of the world until the 1950s, basically what, what we had was this idea of daily prayer. <laughs> and daily prayer has been a fixture in the Jewish and the Christian traditions forever. In fact, you'll see it if you notice it, if you ever read the Psalms. So in Psalm 55, 17, the psalmist says, Evening and morning and noon, I cry out to you. And then in Psalm 119, uh, the psalmist says, Seven times a day, I will praise you. Now, those, those sorts of mentionings really have two purposes. One, it's a figurative way of saying, look, at wherever I am in my day, I'm offering all myself to you continually throughout the day. But, but they also became fixed hours for the Christian church. They became fixed hours when what should happen all the time would get special focused attention as a formal practice in those moments. Listen to me, here's what I mean. In Christianity, in most traditions still today, we still recognize the importance of daily prayer happening basically at some time when you get up in the morning, at some time around midday, at some time in the afternoon, and at some fixed time before you go to bed. Um, and it doesn't have to take 20 minutes every time. Like, think about this for a moment. What if this week, what if this week, here's a challenge. What if this week you committed to presenting yourself to God? The first thing, the, the first thing you did before you reached for your phone in the morning. The first thing you did in the morning. And then what if you committed to presenting yourself to God at lunchtime? What if you committed to presenting yourself to God on your way home from work when that transition happens for many of us? And what if you committed to presenting yourself to God with your wife or individually just before you went to bed, and you just said simply what Jesus himself prays in the garden as he is presenting himself to God. Father, you know my reality. It lies before you. And so not my will, but yours be done. That's consecration. That's presentation. And how might that simple act of presentation beginning to work its way into your heart as a practice, how might that affect your daily attitude? The way that you move into your office at work? How might that affect uh, as you go home to be with your wife and kids at night? How might that affect your priorities? Father, I'm going home now from a long day. You know me, you love me. When I open that door and all the chaos starts to rush in at me, <laughs> not my will, but yours be done. This command belongs in our lives as Christians as a practice. <laughs> Presenting ourselves, our whole selves to God just to see what he might do with what he finds. Let me close with a quick illustration and I'll send you guys to your small groups. A couple of years ago, I feel like I've talked a lot about documentaries, but this is bears worth telling you. Um, I watched, a, uh, well, you should watch all the ESPN 30 for 30s. So, um, this, is, this is one of the original 30 for 30 documentaries. They, they run them all the time now. But um, I was flipping through it. It's, it's called One Night in Vegas. Now, especially if you're around my age, it's about the relationship between Mike Tyson and Tupac, which were like our formative years, you know, in the 90s. And um, so because Tupac is dead, they tell us, we believe that. Because Tupac is dead... They interviewed several people in his life who had either been close to him or had been around him at important moments in his life. And one of those that they interviewed was the author Maya Angelou. 
Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell, um, Dr. Angelou was one of the most important, she just passed away recently, one of the most important poets and authors of the last century. And she, what, what makes it stand out is she is like the polar opposite of Tupac. So Dr. Angelou is, uh, um, Tupac was one of the iconic gangsters in the 90s. And Dr. Angelou was this older, refined, very prim and proper African-American intellectual. And they crossed paths as they were both working on a 1990-something film called Poetic Justice. And in her interview, Dr. Angelou told about the first time that she ever met Tupac. And she's saying this now that she's like cracking herself up a little bit. She said she had never heard of six-pack or two-pack or whatever before. She thought that was very funny. And she didn't know who he was. But she walked out of her trailer one morning. And she said, this is her, in her language, I heard a person cursing. Using such words, she said, I had heard them before, but never in such combination. <laughs> and, 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 he, and he didn't even stop when he saw me. So the next morning, she comes out again, and Tupac and this other guy are arguing, about to go at it. And she says, using the most vile language, and one black man of age, in her words, grabbed one of the guys, the other guy. And Dr. Angela, and she's probably in her 60s at this point, puts her arms and like grabs Tupac and pulls him away over to the side. And she said, excuse me, young man. And he interrupted her, and he's sort of foaming at the mouth, trying to get back into the ring, you know, to fight with this guy. And she says, never mind that now. And here's what she said next. She said, when was the last time anyone told you that it's all for you? That we have lived 300 years on the edge of a dime so that you can exist. When was the last time? Do you know that we stood on slave ships and decks and auction blocks, and we were hosed down like dogs just so that you could live? When was the last time someone reminded you? Of that. And she said, Tupac began, he listened and just lost it. He began to weep. <laughs> and so Dr. Angelou said, I put my arm around his waist and I walked him over to a ditch to get out of the viewing public. And I took a handkerchief and I wiped the tears from his cheeks. Now, can you imagine that picture? <laughs> this iconic rapper weeping in the arms of this iconic poet his heart leveled, broken and contrite, all because he was reminded that the sacrifices of the past had given him a new freedom. And that freedom was not the freedom of self-indulgence. It was the freedom to live up to the dignity of his calling. Men, Paul would say the same thing to you this morning. Such is the freedom that Jesus has won for you. It is not the freedom uh, to remain uh, in self-indulgence. It is the freedom to live up to the dignity of your calling. The freedom to present yourselves as slaves to God, as bondservants to righteousness. The freedom for you to say this morning with sincerity and with joy to the Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for our time together this morning to open your word um, and to have you remind us um, that grace is no small thing. <laughs> and grace is no, not only no small thing uh, for us, it is no small thing in us. That your grace, the power of your grace, the power of being loved by you, being united to Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection, that it has the power to change us. And we do pray for that. We pray, God, that you would show us what it means. Um, to be loved by you, to have our holes covered, but also what it means, O oh Lord, to present ourselves to you, to be consecrated, to give ourselves over to you wholly. In Christ's name, amen.